Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Jimmy's winning matches. Jimmy's winning matches. Jimmy's winning games. Jimmy's winning games. Jimmy's bringing Sammy back to Donegal again. Up Donegal. Oh, Jimmy's winning matches. Jimmy's winning matches. Jimmy's winning games. Jimmy's winning games. Jimmy's bringing Sammy back to Donegal again. Up Donegal. Yeah. What do you like the champions? Lennon, Muff, Rocker, Frumpkin, Bally Shannon, Bally Muffin, Rum Corner, the border. Welcome to Free State, everybody. Um, we are looking forward and back today. I want to look forward because that's the kind of person I am. Always moving forward, never taking a backward glance. Whereas Joe wants to look back over 2023 and, uh, and you know, the highs and lows and remember some of the people we've, we've, we've lost in, in 2023. Um, as we go into 2024, which is going to be, you know, I think as you get older that you, you do sort of, you're much better hooked into the world and you have much more, I mean, 2023 probably ends, you know, in one way, you know, with a, a, a miracle, really the, the child who is stabbed. Uh, and as you know, I, I, sort of happened upon the whole gory scene. And mm. at that time when we talked about it, I mean, I, I, I was so sure, you know, because the child was lifeless for so long that she couldn't possibly make it. But what was the the absolutely driven efforts of uh, the young nurse from the Philippines and and then, you know, the, the emergency services when they arrived, I mean, a, a minor miracle has happened, and you know, just this week, the joyous, joyous news, which really stopped me in my tracks, that uh, that the baby is no longer, uh, her life is no longer in danger, and she's safe now. And and what a what a wonderful finale to 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 twenty twenty three, for me anyway. To, to hear that news, it really, I cannot tell you the elation that I felt, and uh, I hope to, I hope to go and, and uh, you know, when she's better and well, I hope to go and and visit, just a short visit. I would love to see her alive and well, and I mean, obviously that's further down the road when she's, you know, when her strength's up and she's fully recovered, and uh, but that that would be that would be something to dearly look forward to. And particularly, no, I think with with some of the, you know, because just you know, my morale has just been battered by the grotesque, uh, 
spectacle coming out of Gaza, you know, and um, it's been awfully difficult to think of anything else. But um, some of the things that happened this year, you know, and I know we were both, you know, that you knew Huey Russell, I was very friendly with Huey. But, uh, I mean, uh, I've been thinking of him often since he died this year. So uh, it was so out of place for him to die. You know, he was so young and so fit. and You know, he was as baby-faced as he was when he was fighting. And uh, for him to die in that way, it was, uh, you know, it has left a real absence. Yeah, there are people like that whose, whose energy it's just impossible to to uh, under to kind of come to terms with the fact that they're not they're not around. Yeah. And you know, I only I I didn't know him. I met him once. I met him that one day with you. We were in when we went to the Irish News, and he was he was doing the pictures, and he was it wasn't he awful young looking with his he was amazing, and he was but he was just one of those people who you want to kind of spend time with, and you want to. Uh, and like you know, and I remember them, and I remember him from from the Olympics. Uh, and then you're looking at this guy, and he's still got this incredible zest for life and wanting to be around. He's just one of these people who you could tell wanted to be where the action was and joy enjoyed being where the action was and fed off that adrenaline <laughs> and energy. <laughs> and famously, didn't do anybody's name. No, well, that doesn't matter, does it? Once you're going to know where the energy is, you know, it doesn't matter who you actually know. Like at that time, he must have been the most famous man in the world. And Hugh was sent to photograph him, and he didn't know who he had to ask somebody. He had to ask Paddy Heaney which ones, which ones, Bill Clinton. <laughs> well, there was a famous. The thing, uh, the duel, there was. There was, a, there was a famous story about a oh. photographer once being sent to, sent to a match and told to get a picture of the uh, of the Yugoslavia. Ireland were playing Yugoslavia, and he was told to get, get a picture of the Yugoslavian coach. Um, and, you know, it was important. That whatever piece they were doing, they needed a picture of the Yugoslavian coach to uh, to go with it. <laughs> and he came back. He said, okay, all right. Looked a bit confused. Anyway, he came back and uh, produced, produced a lot of pictures of the Yugoslavian boss <laughs> they'd come to the match. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> he just took oh a lot God. of pictures. You know, we, 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 we could have done that, no problem, you know. And he, he, was so, he was so impossibly small to be such a fearsome fighter. I mean, he, he, he's part of northern folklore. Um. The first man to be the British bantamweight and flyweight champion, and a bit like Mickey Ward's famous fights in the Boer Walk against Arturo Gatti after his two fights with Davy Larmer. I mean, in the first in '82, was so gruesome that um, that was given fight of the year. But the canvas was soaked with blood. People in the ringside seats, according to you know, the commentary and all at the time, they were being splattered with blood, you know, just like blood being sprayed out. And, I mean, Hugh himself said after that fight, and it's funny, isn't it, that with the great fighters, that their lives, they're, they're because there's something extremely glorious and unsort of speakably courageous about what they can sometimes do, these monumental occasions where people get locked into a battle of life and death and there's nothing for it, you know, and you see what a person's made of, they're stripped bare, you see their soul. And when when Huey's arm was raised by the referee after a savage, savage fight and the blood was streaming from everywhere, seemingly, um, and his mother cradled him in her arms and she was weeping, you know, that image will will live forever. I don't know if I told you the story about the ref of that fight. Famous story about Mike Jacobs, who was a Londoner, you see. Mm. And uh, he was in the middle of the action, you see, and constantly separating them because, I mean, it was just a, a bloodbath and they were just throwing barrages of punches, you know, 
improbable amounts of punches in every round. So Mike's white shirt was completely saturated in blood, blood drops and spatters. And when, after the fight, he flew back home to London, he left the shirt into the dry cleaners with these trousers, you know, which, although black, were also covered in blood. I mean, there's no no point, obviously, in trying to scrub that off at home, you see. So anyway, a few days later, he goes back to the dry cleaners and uh, about three police car loads are waiting for him, saying they arrest him and frog march him to the back of the car and the dry cleaners thinking that he must have committed some atrocious murder you see had reported it to the police they said look a guy's come in here and he was very casually asked us to launder his shirt and his trousers and they're covered in blood but uh, it was only whenever a statement was obtained from the head of the British Boxing Board of Control that the poor fellow was eventually released <laughs> and, uh, and that's true. Yeah. I mean, you, could, you could sort of picture the you could picture the the police interview, couldn't you? You know, who did you murder? No one. I'm a boxing referee. Only <laughs> 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 the other ones are <laughs> the dividers of knives. I, I promise it happened during the fight. Tell us where the body is. <laughs> there is no body. <laughs> All right, so you play your little games, and uh, he uh, so. Uh, 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 I, I'm, I'm glad that we uh, we uh, are remembering Huey, you know, and I don't know if I, I, I'm not sure that it's really is, but whenever I donated my kidney, Huey was so taken with it that he rang me up and he said, look, I've got something for you. And when I met him, he, he had got Brenton Murphy's iconic photograph of him with his mother, him hanging over the ring apron and his mother hugging him after the fight, signed and framed. And so uh, there'll always be uh, there'll always be a memory of Huey in uh, in my home. Hmm. And um, you know who is, uh, of course, back on the um, on the radio this week, Joe. Uh, and I'm glad he's back. Fuck oh, is he? he is, oh yeah. yes, that's. Yeah. Oh, no, I'm glad to hear yeah. that. I'm glad to hear that. Uh, I mean. He, uh, Brian Tuberty, uh, in case anyone hasn't guessed, he wasn't doing anything. He wasn't doing anything that anyone else in the operation in RT wasn't doing, you know. And I know we had a lot of fun with it, and there was a very serious point about it. But no, I'm I'm, I'm delighted to hear that, you know. Now, even if he did say once that the greatest living Irishman was Terry Wogan, I mean, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> dearie, dear, dearie me. No, but I'm 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 glad to see him work. I mean, that would be his life. He'd be completely institutionalized. I mean, since he was a kid, he was in RT. You know, he was being groomed. Um, you know, for that work, and I mean, what a catastrophe it had to have been for him. Well, that's when it, and I think when we uh, did when we did talk about sack, it, you know, I mean, it's a very cruel, bewildering thing for someone like that, who 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 whose life is that. Yeah, no, it is, and I like. I think I mean, when, I, when we talked about it, we probably, you know, I think that sense of uh, self pity that kind of permeated his appearance at the Oroctus, We probably had a bit of fun with that, but at the same time, as you say, when something like when your life has been going in in one direction and it changes so abruptly, um, it's inevitable and probably and and understandable if that's if that's how you end up feeling that you feel like this great sense of uh, very hard not to feel some sort of pity for yourself. So I think it is, it's, it's, it seems to have energized them. It seems to, you know, any, anything you see, you I see, know, it's you great. Know, it's great. And, uh, um, and hopefully now RTE yeah. can, I don't, I think the bigger issue, which is what we, we always said when we talked about the bigger issue is what RTE becomes. And, uh, I, I'm still not sure what what that is, what it's going well, to become. I, yeah, well, I mean, the biggest issue was the the endemic and systematic corruption. You know, the creation of of uh, uh, secret accounts. You know, and using those accounts. You know, to to really just take the piss. Mm. And eventually, they got to a stage. You know, it's like a corrupt police force. The first time you do it. 
you cross a boundary line and you get the taste for it. And eventually it just becomes commonplace. It becomes normalized. I mean, and that, 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 that's what happened, you know. I mean, and you had that sort of spectacle where a you know, senior executive of RT uh, had forgotten what a salary is. And, um, I mean, we, look, we had a lot of fun with it, you know, RT, the musical and all the rest of it. But it, it is good to see him. You know, we, wish, we wish no man ill. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and it's good to see him back. And, of course, um, Jimmy McGuinness is back as well. They're all back. They built Jimmy just McGinnis has built a wall, hasn't he? Just, just when you thought it was safe. Many years ago, I wrote a column. I said, look, you know, and it was a sort of a satirical thing. I said, look, it's only a matter of time before teams are investing in stealth and cloak and technology. You know, they'll be using drones, bug sweeping devices. There'll be 24-hour surveillance on movements, phones, computers of players, behavioral contracts will be the norm. I got an awful kick out of making all this stuff up, you know. Players will have to sign confidentiality clauses, you know, like the employees of Google or Amazon, you know. Socializing will only be allowed at Christmas subject to advance written permission from management, you know. And uh, and then Jimmy came along. <laughs> <laughs> Let us just hope, my friend, that he doesn't have a super injunction preventing his name being mentioned publicly. And uh, I mean, he was more than anyone the person who helped bring in the era of control and domination of players. And he, he did, I think. I mean, don't get me wrong, he was brilliant. I mean, he, he had a, he had a brilliant cult dealer. He could have convinced that Donegal team to go into a remote forest, you know, and, and, and slit their own throats for the good of the county. I mean, he, he does have a very extraordinary messianic quality. And, uh, I mean, he, um, I mean, the, 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 the control, the very controlling side of his personality is part and parcel of, so you get the good in the sense of he will now be, preparing for Derry to break Derry and Ulster. Derry have won two Ulster titles. I mean, in 2011, when he took over Tyrone, he told his sort of bemused, bedraggled group of losers, you know, we are going to break Tyrone. We're going to break them. We're going to break Mickey Hart. We're going to win Ulster this year. And next year, we're going to be All-Ireland champions. And they left that first meeting bemused, but interested you know, each of them was given a typed behavioral contract described as legally binding. Um, you know, players' phones collected after team talks in the mornings of big games. Because alongside that meticulous rehearsal and preparation, and that's what he did about drone. He studied those drone players, put them under the microscope, how they played, how we want to beat them, how we're going to play to beat them. How do we take away their strengths? How do we get? How do we climb into their skulls psychologically? And he made that his life's work. And uh, I mean, I around about maybe three weeks before they played the All Ireland semi final in two thousand and eleven, and true to the word, they'd beaten Tyrone in Ulster. I mean, this was a team that had been a laughing stock for three or four years. I mean, genuinely a laughing stock. But I went into St. Eunan's and Letterkenny to watch a Donegal training session. And I had the kids with me because we were on holidays for five or six days up in North Donegal. And it was the most grueling physical training I'd ever seen, you know, in the mouth of an All-Ireland semi-final. And after two hours, they were still going. And um, we headed off to get ice cream. You know, I'd promised the kids pictures of Michael Murphy, but, you know, after two hours... And a few days later, we were at the local shop, and our Rory was really, you know, young at the time. He says to me, "Daddy, you're in the paper." <laughs> I had been captured by the long lens of a cameraman at the session, right. and I had intended to go to the training again that night. But when I rang my man at Saint Eunan's, everybody will know who he is, but I won't mention him, so he can always deny it. Deny it. And he said, "Sorry, Joe, they've moved the training to Bally Buffet, and they have security in the gate, and they've been warned." To, 
they've been warned not to let you in, Joe. I said, seriously? He says, oh, seriously? He says, Jimmy wasn't happy, but the other night he wasn't happy at all. And after that, it was lockdown. The gates were guarded. No one was allowed in. Players got texts at five o'clock on training days telling them where the training was that night, you know. And, um, I mean, I wouldn't be a bit surprised. They got texts you know, today telling them where the they were going to be training like it was... Uh like it was like, kind of, like, it's, like it was a secret rave. The way they used to kind of direct people to raves when when they were when when people were out, when ravers were out out running the kind of police in England, <laughs> you know, and you'd get a kind of message at yeah. six o'clock. You know, yeah. this is where you head to Junction Twelve of the M4. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it was a bit like that, was it? It was. It was. Uh, yeah, or like sort of the American president's security detail. You know, Eagle One is leaving the nest at five oh five. Uh, coordinate your watches, gentlemen. But, you know, I mean, I wouldn't be a bit surprised if I know that they're building a 55,000 euro anti-surveillance fence around the training ground, and that's been widely publicized, you know, in the Donegal and national papers. And apparently you can't either photograph or video through the fence because of its qualities. I'm assuming there's some sort of electronic pulse that goes through it, you know. And, uh, I mean... <laughs> well, I mean, this, this, this is not a joke. And you sort of, you know, I would, I mean, I, I sort of imagine the Donegal players now they have their cars fitted with smoke machines and nail scatterers, you know, to be deployed if they suspect they're being tailed <laughs> by a journalist. <laughs> and, uh, but the thing about Jimmy, you know, and I can, I can never fully. I find it very difficult wrestling with what he did with Kevin Casty, who was the team leader 2011, him and Michael Murphy. All-star that year, you know, one of their best two or three players. And he gives some innocuous details to journalists in the off-season about their mobile phones being taken from them on the morning of the, 2000, the notorious 2011 semi-final when the crowd slow hand-clapped and booed in bewilderment and shock at what they were seeing because no one had ever seen that before, the whole team disappearing into the defence and saying essentially to the dubs, come on, let's see if you can break us down. But he dropped Cassidy, but not just dropped him. I mean, it was a very cruel exile. Kevin and his then partner, now wife, were banned from going on the 2011 Ulster Champions team holiday. You know? mm. And um, and and and, and it, it emphasised that Jimmy is like a cult leader. You know, he's absolutely unyielding because I can't think of any other manager who would have done that because Kevin Casty was a crucial, crucial, crucial player in that team. And yet, you know, you break the code um, and there you are. I mean, I was down and I was in a charity cycle one time with the Glen boys, you know, the Glen team who lost out to the Kilmacud 16 <laughs> this year in the all Cup final. Yeah, Kilmacut are bringing a tally man to the matches in the future to count their, count their players. An, ab <laughs> an abacus. <laughs> a Kilmacud official, because they've got a huge backroom team um, with an abacus, just, just to count the players going on and off the field. But anyway, the, the Glen boys in the days before they could have dreamed that they would have such a superb team and have such success, we we had a charity cycle and they asked me if I joined them, so I cycled with them and we went in, we we cycled to Downings. And we discovered to our you know enjoyment that Donegal were having a training camp on the pitch. Hmm. But there was security in the gates. You could see them, but you couldn't get over. And later that night we were getting ready to go out and have pints. And Anthony Thompson and three or four of the other Donegal regulars were in the local spa and they were filling a bag, a big bag. Big plastic bag with sweets, chocolate bars, chalk ices. He says, Does Jimmy know about this? Thompson says, Jesus, Joe, he says, No woman, no drink, no socializing. If we didn't have chocolate, we'd go mental altogether. <laughs> <laughs> this, this, this was, you know, and uh, the, uh, the, 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 the sort of fascinating contradictions of Jimmy, you know. I mean, you remember the one of the most notable. Uh, episodes of sporting espionage in Ireland before the 2014 All Ireland final. Go on. No, no. Oh, you're betraying yourself, Dean. I'm going to have to start educating you in the in the true path of the Gale. Oh Jesus! I mean, 
you come from GA royalty. Your yeah. father played for Kerry. Yeah. He was close friends with 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 uh, the greatest Kerry footballer, Mick O'Connell. Well, until David Clifford. You you don't remember the curious incident of the Killarney tree climber? No, no. Well, anyway, for the for the younger listeners and for for Dion and other 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 um, posh boys. Shortly before the 2014 final, Kerry were training in Killarney, you see, and Mikey Sheehy, you know, the legendary Kerry corner forward he, from the Golden Years team. He lived up. He was part of the backroom team, and he thought he thought. And the reason I could tell you this story so definitively is because Mikey and the group, Patrick the Bag O'Sullivan, the Kerry chairman, and Niall Botty O'Callaghan, who's the kit man, Niall told me the story face to face because it had gone into the papers, you see, but I got the right way of it. Mikey thought he saw Russell in, and there's a huge tree overlooking the ground at St. Finian's Corner in Killarney. You see, it's a huge tree. It's been there for a lifetime. And Mikey was, you know, he said, Fuck, there's definitely somebody up that tree. You see, so he said to Buddy, <laughs> well, had the kit, man, go for check out that tree, you see. I mean, you, you, you couldn't make this stuff up. So Buddy drove over. With Eddie Walsh, who's the who was the bottle carrier for the Kerry team. You know, they've got a job for everybody there. And they, they went over and they stood staring up at the tree, but they couldn't see any movement at all. You see, and eventually they concluded that Mikey's imagination was playing up. So then they drove back over, they said to Mikey's nobody there. Mikey said, There's definitely somebody there. In fact, if you look now, you could see the <laughs> the tree, the tree rustling. So out of deference to Mikey, back they go again. This time they left the car and they went on foot. And Eddie, who's a guard, you see, he circled around the tree, you know, in the manner of a drugs bust mm. where one of the guards circles around the back and approached from the rear. And they stared at the tree for a while. And eventually they saw the silhouette of a man nestled in the tree, overlooking the training pitch. And Eddie, the guard, said, come down from that tree. You're trespassing on private property. I am a member. He told him he was a member of the guard of Sheikana. And if you don't come down from that tree, I will call for backup. <laughs> At which point, a man fell out of the tree onto the ground, <laughs> came, came down through the tree like Indiana Jones, <laughs> hit the ground in front of them. Where are you from? said Eddie, and made a grab from him. And the man said, Dublin, in a broad Donegal accent before running off and escaping, <laughs> you see. But, <laughs> but alas for him, Dion, alas, in his manic tumble from the tree, his bank card had dropped oh, out of his no. pocket. Oh, yeah. And it turns out he was Jimmy McGuinness's best man at his wedding. Oh. Rumbled. Coincidence? Maybe. Coincidence? Maybe coincidence. Maybe just coincidence. Yes. Um, there, so there was. Uh, I. 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 No, go on. No, go on ahead. No, I just like there was there was a famous uh, there was a famous uh, Spygate in English football with Marcello Bielsa and Frank Lampard who who caught Bielsa when he was at Leeds spying and Bielsa who is one of the most magnificent people in football. Uh, he, he instead of instead of denying it, he he gave he gave a long press conference detailing how he spied on every one of his teams, uh, every one of his teams I had to play against. So he really kind of took it took it took it away. How from, did he from How did he spy on them? He, he, the man he was spotted with a. Uh, if I look, uh, a, a, a man was a man uh, was spotted with pliers, binoculars, and in disguise clothing, looking over their training ground. Um, Oh, so Jesus, uh, it's, like, you, it's like Inspector Clouseau. But um, but did McGuinness? Well, can I ask you something about McGuinness and, and Cassidy? Did McGuinness then try and bring Cassidy back into the squad? No, no, no. no I thought I'd read that that, that he actually tried to. Uh, everybody, everybody. Uh, I would say that what's on your mind is probably the way everybody else thought. Look, he's he'll, he'll relent. You know, I mean, Kevin was also a ferocious trainer. You know. Um, he, he he went on to win. He went on to win an Ulster club title with his club, and he powered them from full forward. I mean, he was truly brilliant throughout that season. And 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 yet, not only 
did Jimmy exile him in that way? But not a single clubmate of Kevin Casty, and they were very, very strong characters. The McGee boys, for example, very loyal men, you know, very, very strong characters. Nobody, not a single person in that squad uh, mutineered. Mm. Everybody just kept their heads down. Um, I mean, and I, I in, in 2011, the plan was to break Tyrone's dominance in Ulster. And they'd been beaten in the first round also the previous year. And then Armad absolutely humiliated them, like humiliated them in the qualifiers. And so what they did was they, Jimmy told them, this is how we're going to beat them. This We're all going to do this, what you're going to do. He stepped it out in the pitch. Everything, every preparation was minutely, minutely worked on. And they broke Tyrone. And in the following three seasons, every year, they humiliated Tyrone, as in, you know, a team that really were a very, very strong, powerful team until Jimmy came along. And he had them, and he had Mickey Hart in the vice. And then in 2014, their famous ambush, one of the most famous games, I think, in the history of Gaelic football, the Dublin team that couldn't be beaten, the invincible team that are now going to win 10 in a row or five in a row. You know, and they decide that they're going to stick with their man-to-man game, as we knew they would. And I wrote that morning, the nightmare is upon Dublin. And I remember saying to Bernard Brogan, a few, you know, in the run-up to that game, I met him out somewhere and I said, oh, yeah, your hubris is going to be your downfall, Bernard. You can't defy the laws of physics. Donegal are going to beat you. And he actually laughed. He was so relaxed about it, he actually laughed. And you'll remember then, in the first part of that game, Dublin besieged Donegal. Donegal had everybody back. Nobody fouled, because that's one of the things about Jimmy's teams, they don't foul inside the scoring area. And once they had, once they had damaged the Dubs' morale, planted the thought in their minds, you're not going to be able to penetrate us. And then they started hitting them on the counter attack, and these counter attacks were worked on. Jimmy told me after the 2014 season that they had been plotting that performance from the very first training session in January that year. All they had thought about was the Dubs in the All Ireland semi final. That's where we're going to be. That's who we'd be playing, you know, and it was rehearsed over and over and over until I have no doubt those boys played that game virtually in automatic mode, sucking Dublin in, the counterattacks, the long kickouts, flick-ons to the half-forwards who were inside their own 45, then surging forward, you know, three goals against Dublin. And uh, and it was a vital lesson for Jim Gavin as well because thereafter he did deploy the sweeper. He kept someone... You know, and in fact, and in fact, the sweeper that they chose, Ken O'Sullivan, was instrumental in in that sort of glorious era that followed. And now, I've absolutely no doubt that Jimmy's sole goal is to break Derry and break Mickey Hart. He has us, and they've got us in the first round mm. in Celtic Park, which is a Derry Citadel. And I mean this; I've said this already. I I think. Without even seeing Donegal in the league, a friend of mine told me from Ballyshannon that, that this is some weeks ago that they'd already had 53 sessions on the beach in Ballyshannon. Right. They've had warm weather training in Tenerife. This will now be an obsessive, relentless pursuit for Jimmy. It will obliterate everything else in his life and his players will believe him when he tells them what they will achieve. Now, he doesn't have Michael Murphy, which is a huge difference from the past, because a young Michael Murphy was one of the great footballers of this or any other era, you know. But all that's left in their world now would be Mickey Hart and Derry, and they will plan meticulously for us. And um, and so that's the the return of the dark destroyer of Gaelic football. But when you say that, when you say that, like I, I know people. Well, I have an uncle who's uh, uh, um, a simulated Donegal man who lived lived up there for fifty years, 
And the joy they got when that Donegal team were winning, like they wouldn't, oh, they yeah. would say it was all worth it. Like, isn't isn't there something in making a, a somewhere like Donegal win win in All Ireland, get the success that they've had, bring that happiness to people? Like that is worth something. Whatever you say about the the way in which they do it, isn't it? It was a bit like it was a bit like that. You know the Goldman the Goldman paradox. You know so. So Goldman was a, 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 a psychologist, and what he did was he interviewed leading sports people, okay. you know, sports people who were on the cusp of success hmm. uh, in, in athletics. And he said, look, this was the question. If you could take a pill, okay, that will make you, that will guarantee that you will be the Olympic champion, okay? But within five years, you will be dead. Would you take it? 90% of the interviewees said that they would. And 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 there's been a big trade-off. So it was ingenious what Jimmy did in 2012. You know, no one else was doing that. Everybody else was trying to play man-to-man. He, he turned the game on its head. You know, he introduced zonal defending, counter-attack football. And when he did that at the start, no one else was doing it. It could at times look extremely dramatic. And there was a sense of inevitability about all Donegal's games in 2012. You know, the players had had bought into this. It was a joyous, um, and they ruthlessly punished everyone they played. And and it looked great, that counter-attack in football. It was a bit like the early days of Jose Mourinho before people caught on to what he was doing. Mm. And then it all became very boring. You had these attritional games of soccer where not very much was happening. But the trade-off was that everyone else started to copy what Jimmy was doing. And once that happened, then, I mean, you've got to a stage where club football in Donegal is unwatchable. Veterans of Donegal GA will tell you, I've been to see some games up there. And... And it has spread, you know, throughout the, the country. And I, I, I noted, Jimmy, I don't know if you remember, he used to do those weekly interviews with Keith Duggan of the Irish Times. Mm. You know, so Keith Duggan would write Jimmy. And in the summer of 2016, two years after he'd stood down, Jimmy said, I watched Galway and Roscommon on Sunday afternoon in complete dismay, a vision of the game in the near future when it may be in complete ruins. The match hadn't even finished when I felt certain the GA needs to introduce rules by which at least three players from both teams must remain in the offensive end of the pitch. And fuck, we had Rich Cover and Jimmy at all times. Otherwise, we're going to have these stalemates after stalemates and the game is going to continue to go nowhere. Which um, you might think was a bit like the creator of the myxomatosis plague lamenting the fact that rabbits are going blind. <laughs> but the effect the effect of Jimmy's ingenious ambush, you know, of, of Gaelic football has had profound consequences for the game itself. So you're absolutely right. There was great delight in, in Donegal in 2012, great joy. You know, they had they had some great players. Um, it was a plan that worked to perfection. It reminded me of, you know, Hannibal in, 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 in the A-team. Smoking a cigar after the All Ireland final in 2012, say I love it when a plan comes together, mm. you know. But the damage that it's done to the game has been profound and long-lasting, and we're now reaching the stage where we must find a solution to return the entertainment to the game for the players, for the the, the spectators, for the entire GA community. Because while hurling has never been healthier, Gaelic football, you know is becoming uh, a game of the coaches for the coaches, you know, where there's little or no joy, little or no individual expression, you know, and 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 the game has become utterly mechanical and devoid of 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Ingenuity. You know, so... so um, let us hope that Jimmy is not about to unleash a new strain of the McGuinness virus. And that, but he, but, but and he's, that he is one of the most word, interesting people. Trudeau's word in 2016, he will, he will, he will try <coughs> and play a more adventure plan, but I would not bet on it. His instinct, his instinct is always to close down, to close down, to close down. And he'll be a perfectionist in that regard. And I think that Derry could be in serious trouble in Ulster, because but it, but, but, but don't the great managers like, like McGuinness clearly has something you know whatever he does to get that kind of cult like devotion. There's also there's a reason why people follow him and believe in him. And if everybody is doing one thing and as everybody has followed a trend, if he is the manager that he appears to be, and he always seems to me even as as an outsider to be one of the most interesting people thinking about 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 sport and Gaelic football. He's got to have thought of a new way of evolving it so that actually maybe uh, it is different. Maybe it is more expansive in some way because that's the only way you have to find a new way. If everybody is doing the same thing, the thing to do is to do, you have to do something different. So maybe he will find a way of doing something different. I'm I'm not sure. He had one big idea and that was to move to a soccer defensive style formation um, and to, to, you know, to only defend, to not be concerned about man to man, you know, to to make sure that you kept scores to a minute, minute, minimum in your defensive zone, that you didn't foul. I mean, exhaustive work was done, inventive, exhaustive work was done around that basic ideal. And then by 2012, he was working religiously on on a very inventive counter-attacking game plan. But his ideas didn't stretch beyond that. We saw the 2014 final against Kerry and all Kerry did was basically sit back and try to mirror what Donegal were doing. And as soon as Kerry sat back and didn't allow him the space to counterattack into, all of a sudden the game was just completely attritional and it was the worst All-Ireland football final in living memory, the 2014 final. Kerry won it eventually with the goalkeeper making a howler of a short kick out and the great Kieran Donaghy sweeping it to the net. And then famously, famously jabbing me. Yeah, yeah. So well, we, but we, I'm not, did, I'm not sure that he will have. I think, I think, however, that that Derry's very methodical game plan, you know, which was hatched by Rory Gallagher, who of course was Jimmy's right hand man, you know, yeah. means that it's going to be very difficult to see how Mickey Hart's going to improve that, and what sort of, you know, because whenever you've got someone as strong willed as Rory Gallagher. Very like Jimmy in many ways, messianic, obsessive, you know, um, absolutely, you know, obliterating for the players the outside world. This is our life and this is what we need to do. And if we do this, we will succeed. 
And and once a missile like that leaves, it's very difficult to see how someone else can improve on that, particularly Mickey's track record, um, which is, you know, he, he would not be a meticulous preparer in the manner of Jimmy. Mm-hmm. And 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 so it, it, it'll be it'll be very interesting to see where we go with that. Now, a, a manager who who didn't prepare meticulously, um, who was beloved in our community, Liam Hemphy, he died this year. And uh, when I think back to twenty twenty three, I will always think of that. I got a text just a few weeks ago from Eddie Kerr, one of the greatest ever hurlers, one of mm. Kilkenny's sort of true greats, I suppose Eddie, Henry Shefflin, you know, maybe two or three others. And uh, he was reflecting on Liam Hinfie's life. Uh, and uh, Liam... Um, Met my Aunt Mary Kay in 1966 at a dance. And uh, he was a village man in Kilkenny. Fell in love with pint sized Mary Kay, as he called her. She was five foot two, he's six foot five. And uh, as my grandmother probably used to say, God rest her, as soon as he discovered that Aunt Mary Kay had a clean driving license in a car, <laughs> the big. <deep. laughs> <laughs> they shook hands. They shook hands, and and the deal was done. But he, uh, I mean, he arrived into my grandmother's kitchen in Station Road, you know, and he had a he had a handlebar moustache and sunglasses, you know, and he looked like a sort of a a giant Colombian godfather, you know. And uh, but what fun we had, you know, him establishing hurling and Dungiven, turning it into a a, a, a hurling sanctuary. And, I mean, don't forget that was very shortly after his arrival. The troubles were in full swing. And Mm -hmm. the Kilkenny board then, understanding the situation and Liam being very close with them, they they used to send us all their hand-me-downs. So he'd get Kilkenny kits, hurls, slithers, coming up in consignments in the boots of cars, in the middle of the troubles. And Mm -hmm. so for... Many years we hurled in the Kilkenny colours. And in fact, in 1984 in centenary year, when our footballers and hurlers were both in the county final, as a mark of respect, we wore, we wore the yellow and black. Okay. As, a, as, a, as a token of what Kilkenny had done for us, you know. But he was so, he was so flamboyant, Liam, you know. He, uh, one of the things he did was he brought legendary club teams to Dungiven, you know. Right. Uh, James Stevens, you know these names like Eddie Kerr came, Brian Cody came, you know, and and as Liam said himself, the first Dungiven hurling team was not noted for its finesse. You know, he he said once that if the RUC had had happened to get a glimpse of any of the games in progress, they would have got out and started firing rubber bullets that had given men. I remember the Berlin once against the Coleraine University team, and it was a bloodbath. Liam's brother played in Fancy Boyle, you know, and Fancy, whose sort of general philosophy as a fullback was that was was uh, to pull when the ball was in the general area, you know. And our our community developed such close relationships with Kilkenny, which even younger Kilkenny. Kenny players now, many of them are, are aware of it. You know, I mean, Liam was extraordinary. He like he also managed the Derry team, the great Derry team of the seventies. You know? Right. And Larry Diamond, who was the captain of that team, he said, um, he said before Big Liam, he said there were clear rules about drinking. After Liam became the manager, you couldn't get on the panel unless you drank. <laughs> 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 and and that was you know, and I, I, it was. It was drinking after games together was an essential part of Liam's philosophy, you know, and woo betide the Dungiven panelists, like for example, who didn't appear in Jim McGrennell's after a championship match, washed right. and ready to go, you know. And um once in Jim McGrennell's bar, he, he he referred to Jim's on oh, the day he died as the office. And uh, once in Jim's on the day of an Irish rugby international, Jim decided to count the pints of stout. 
And by closing time, Liam had drunk 31 pints, or as Warty Kelly put it, one short of United Ireland. <laughs> 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 but he, 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 he was, he, he was something, you know, and, uh, and the boys and Emer, they're all such strong personalities and all such good humor. And Mary Kay is just such a, I mean, I remember Mary Kay pint size during the hunger strikes or during the, the, the dirty protests, you know, leading the blanket protests through the town, you know, wearing only a blanket and always so staunch and on the right side of things and such a loyal, good person, you know. But at, at Big Liam's Wake, you know, his sons, his big sons, Kieran, Kevin and Liam Oog were on sentry duty at the front door and we were all sort of congregated around. The inner circle were all sort of congregated around there. And one of the mourners came in and he said, you know, what um, what, uh, what finally did for your father? And Liam Oog said with a completely straight face, the news about Mickey Hart. But <laughs> <laughs> the, the man doesn't know whether to laugh or not. It was uh, the news about Mickey Hart finished him. And, uh, and so I'm, 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 I'm so glad to remember him. And he, he made an enormous contribution to given. And actually, at the at the at the wake, because the house was packed. The, the house was filled with kids wearing their Kevin Lynch hurling shirts, you know. And the adults wearing Kevin Lynch T-shirts and track tops. And, you know, families coming in all decked out in the colours. You know. And there was a Kevin Lynch jersey hanging outside the front door to be signed by all the players who had played under Liam with Owen Farn, one of his old players supervising. And the time I came to sign it, Dion, there was... No room left on the jersey. It was just covered in hundreds of tiny signatures of of Liam's old boys, and uh, they uh, they may be dead, but what he what he planted in our town will live forever. I'm so glad to remember him here. When we were talking about Huey Russell at the beginning, and I was saying about how there are certain people who their energy and their their life force who find it hard impossible to believe that they're gone i was actually thinking of an uncle of mine i mentioned him before on the podcast when charles was in actually about he was a, a priest and a huge awfully hurling fan um and he died a couple of years ago during covid and i still think i see him on the street you know that feeling where you see somebody whose life force I say, there's michael now uh and there isn't any any event explain, or anything. Explain that to me. Explain it's that just, to me. His personality was so big that I, like my wife says the same thing. When we moved back from England, uh, we were talking about him the other day because we had a farewell in his house. They sold his house. Uh, his sister, my aunt, sold everyone. They sold his house, and where he lived since when he came back from Africa, that house is got is going. And they talked about how he joined the gym. And he used to go to the gym every day. And people said, God, it's great the way Michael goes to the gym. He went to the gym for two reasons. There were free newspapers in the lobby. And he could chat to anybody who came into the gym. So he would sit in the lobby of the of the gym reading all the papers. And then he would come around to our house for tea and cake. Um, and he was just, he just, he was, he took everything on. He was the most curious person I've ever met in that he he wanted to know about everything. He would argue about anything with you. You know, you give him two minutes of information on something and he'd be ready to argue about it with you. Um, he would have loved, he would have listened to this podcast. He would have lo- He would have been on to you. Uh, you would have been getting phone calls. You would have, the whole thing. He would have just loved everything. But because of his energy, I find it very hard. There are people who I see on the street who might look a little bit like him and I'm convinced it's him. And I think it's possibly as well because he died during COVID and lots of people have this experience because we all went away one day and then, you know, we came out and he he, he got sick during COVID and uh, it was just such a strange time and it just he just went downhill very fast. But I, the reason I bring him up again is be- – go on. No, no, go on. The reason I bring him up again is because when you're talking, the one person – I was thinking about him a lot and all my family when 
Johnny Flaherty's death was announced before just before Christmas because yeah. that to me, Paul Rouse had a wonderful piece in the in the examiner about him. But to me, that is he isn't he, you know, he is he represents a huge amount for Offley Hurling, but for some for people, you know, again it is what sport is about for because for me it is a moment in time with family. You know, my mother isn't alive anymore. My uncle Michael isn't alive anymore. There were people there, you know, all those people. I was at that match in 1981. Um, yeah. And I remember my uncle in the in the Hogan stand, we were in the upper stand, upper Hogan stand. He said, I have to go now. Because he had to go and run onto the, he had to get onto the pitch. And there were tears in his eyes and there were tears in my mother's oh, eyes. Yeah. And so when you read about Johnny Flaherty, you remember all those people. And like that is the wonderful thing, the old stand. you know. Yeah, and the old stand shake, and the old stand used to shake when a score <laughs> went in, and whenever Johnny's goal went in, the place just shook. I mean, and the you could see the camera shaking, you know, as though the cameraman was jumping in delight as well. And there was a particular yeah. atmosphere around those games that was electric. We're so much, you know, the games are so much more ordered and less electrifying now than they were. I mean, the odd time it happens, but then there was something also about them, you know, some of them not bothering with helmets and boys with helmets perched on the back of their head. <laughs> was it not clasped, you know? But you were talking about your 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 uncle who died during COVID and, uh, you know, the deprivation of one of the great things about Irish life, the great Irish wake and funeral. I know. You know and I... I uh, just, I mean, just what, the last three or four weeks, I watched Shane McGowan's funeral, hmm. and uh, I didn't know Shane. He was obviously a hellraiser, and 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 had terrible, terrible trouble trouble with 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 drink and drugs. I mean, I never met the man, and an anarchist, and I know all the things that you you you'd said about him. But I thought that his funeral, I and. God forgive me for saying this, but I thought it was one of the funniest, life-affirming, poignant mm. events that I've seen. You know, the naturalness of the singing, you know, the authenticity of the whole thing, and his wife, <laughs> <laughs> his wife gave it the eulogy, which uh, you just like, you just never hear anything like that in the Catholic Church, you know, talking about his favorite drugs, you know, and, and, and it was whenever she said she'd never... <laughs> She says, like I've never, I've never uh, met a priest who actually believes in God. <laughs> and I was like, and, 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 uh, and uh, you know, Michael D sitting in the front row with his mouth open, and uh, and then <laughs> she said, and then she said, she said something along the lines of, you know, and you know, there wasn't a drug drug that Shane didn't experiment with, and wasn't he the better man for it, right? And and then. <laughs> And she said, did she see? And then you see, I didn't realize that Johnny Depp was there. And then she said to Johnny Depp, she said, Yes, Johnny, you can see Johnny thinking over oh, fuck's sake, here we go. You see, and she says, And Johnny, she said, Johnny, I have to say this to you. You could see, Oh my God, being televised to the world. Shane would have wanted you to apologize to Amber Heard. <laughs> and at that stage, at that stage, Shane's father actually put his head in his hands. <laughs> And, uh, and and it was just it was just you know suitably riotous finale yeah to a wonderful and and riotous life you know of 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 an outsider of an outsider and we were in New York on Christmas Eve in a bar and needless to say there it was that song came on and you talk about a moment in time and 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 if any of us ever have a moment in time like that well our lives will have been worse living there was christmas eve day in the drunk tank and all man said to me and say another one and then I sang a song Dreamed about you Got up 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.